0: To thoroughly equipped a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings books conferences bible studies etc to scripture our focus is 2 timothy 3 16 17 that all scripture is god breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so the man or woman of god may be thoroughly equipped for every good work I'm your host, Mel Toast. (laughs) That's my name. And today I thought we'd get controversial. (laughs) Not for the sake of mere controversy, but because I think it's something the church as a whole should take some time and effort dealing with on this topic. And that is, where should the church draw the line between the observations of man and the sciences and God's word? Now, I bring this up because we just went through Jenny Allen's Bible study on Philippians, in which she uses positive psychology to introduce psychotherapeutic techniques to address a problem she believes women in God's church struggle with, and that's spiraling downward in our thoughts. Now, if you haven't listened to this critique, I suggest you do, as I take you step-by-step through the book, looking at certain claims she makes and comparing them to Scripture— Uh, I will include the link in the show description. Now Jenny Allen's book, Get Out of Your Head, A Study in Philippians, uses scripture along with certain positive psychological tenets to solve the problem of quote unquote being in our heads. These techniques include things such as mind mapping our thoughts, identifying cognitive distortions, the practice of cognitive reframing calling us to focus on awe and beauty to diminish the individual self, and the use of weapons such as silence, intentionality, connection, humility, etc. So let's dive in. What is positive psychology? I'll be reading a lengthy quote from positivepsychology.com, giving an introduction of where positive psychology came from and what its focus and goals are. I will interject my own points as we go along. All right, quote. Before World War II, the field of psychology had three clear missions. Treat mental illness, make life more productive and fulfilling, and identify and nurture talent. After World War II, the Veterans Administration, now the Veterans Affairs, and the National Institute of Mental Health were founded, and the focus of psychology turned almost exclusively toward understanding and treating mental illness. This focus was incredibly beneficial. More than 14 previously incurable disorders were scientifically researched, and treatments to cure or relieve the symptoms were found. Psychologists came to understand how people survive and endure adversity, challenges, and trauma. Research about the impacts of divorce, loss of loved ones, sexual and physical abuse, damaged childhoods, damaged brains, and habits exploded. By adopting a disease model, psychologists made remarkable progress towards discovering how to repair psychological damage. However. Psychology's other missions, to promote productive, meaningful lives, and nurture talent, were left unattended. Martin Sligman is considered the father of positive psychology. He tells the following story of a central moment during 1998, a few months before he was elected president of the American Psychological Association. Quote, I was weeding the garden with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki. She was throwing weeds, singing, and dancing while I was actually trying to get the weeding done. I yelled at her. She walked away, then came back and said, Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday? I was a whiner. I whined every day. When I turned five, I decided not to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. End quote. He realized that raising children is not about fixing and correcting what's wrong with them, but identifying and enhancing their strongest qualities and what they do best and helping them find the environments that allow them to play out their strengths and live productive, fulfilled lives. All right, my note here. Notice the goal of positive psychology is to promote the strongest qualities and what they do best, basically self-esteem oriented, To help them find environments to live those strengths out and to live productive, fulfilled lives. Scripture has something to say about our strengths and how we live not only fulfilled and productive lives but lives that are holy and reflect the glory of God. Question is, does positive psychology have the same goal? Do they want to encourage individuals to glorify God? So. Let's continue reading. And I'm having a really hard time pronouncing this gentleman's name. Um, I'm just going to call him Mr. MC. Please excuse me. I'm really sorry. It's very lengthy name. <laughs> All right. Mr. MC also acknowledges the need for positive psychology. During World War II in Europe, he witnessed successful and confident men become helpless and hopeless as their social support vanished. Also, they lost their jobs, money, and status. They also lost their sense of meaning of life. Amid the chaos and turmoil, however, a few people kept their integrity and purpose. Their serenity provided hope for others. This got Mr. C., Wondering what sources of strength enabled these people to hold on to their sense of hope. Philosophy, history, and religion failed to provide him with the answers he was looking for. He found that these disciplines were too subjective and abstract. However, he recognized a possible solution to his questions in the field of psychology, a discipline that deals with the fundamental issues of life with the simplicity of the natural sciences. In the 1950s, psychology was not a recognized discipline. In Italy, where... Okay, I'm going to try to pronounce his name. Meheli, Sorry, this is, I probably really butchered butchered it but (laughs) mr c in italy where mr c lived it was only possible to study psychology as a minor while pursuing a major in medicine or philosophy so he moved to the united states where psychology had been established as a science this period in psychology is known as the culmination of behaviorism During this period, psychology and behavior were being taught as, quote, value-free branches of statistical mechanics, end quote, which was a lens Mr. C struggled to reconcile with the rich displays of human human integrity and values he witnessed among the most resilient during the war. He, therefore, sought a science of human beings that could piece together, quote, what is and what could be. Fast forward a decade, and humanist psychologists like Abraham Maslow and Carl Rogers brought a new perspective to psychology. Parting ways with Freud and behaviorism, this approach emphasized the innate drive in all human beings to self-actualize and to express their capabilities and creativity. All right. Now I'm going to interject here. So let's look a little at self-actualization. Self-actualization in Maslow's hierarchy of needs is the highest level of psychological development where personal potential is fully realized after basic bodily and ego needs have been fulfilled. Self-actualization was coined by the organismic theorist. Kurt Goldstein for the motive to realize one's full potential, quote, the tendency to actualize itself as fully as possible is the basic drive, the drive of self-actualization, End quote. Carl Rogers similarly wrote of, quote, the curative force in psychotherapy, man's tendency to actualize himself to become his potentialities, to express and activate all the capacities of the organism. Now, that was Wikipedia on self-actualization. So basically, self-actualization is making claims about oneself and one's potential and bringing it into fruition. Um, One self-actualizes or performs in life that which he claims about himself after having certain needs met, which will motivate them to become fulfilled and live out their full potential. So notice that the new perspective on psychology was one that believes that man can and will self-actualize when needs are met, motivating to motivating them to reach their full potential. The full potential is a possibility in the wisdom of man. But what does a fulfilled life look like? What does reaching my full potential actually look like. Is it the same as being holy as God is holy? In scripture we have revealed to us by the Holy Spirit a problem that we all have. We have been born dead in trespasses and sin. We are born in this nature that keeps us from being holy as God has called us to be, therefore placing us as children of wrath instead of children of God. But God, great statement there. But God in his great mercy also provides a solution. Christ, the perfect spotless lamb who takes the wrath for us and gives us his righteousness that we receive by faith. We are regenerated, given new hearts to desire to be holy as God is holy and the Holy Spirit is given to us to help us walk in the spirit. Question uh, begged here is then, do we need maslow's hierarchy of needs met so we can self-actualize and reach our full potential well no we need christ but let's continue reading quote unfortunately these perspectives lack a culminative empirical base leading to multiple therapeutic self-help movements Regardless of the stories and insights that led to the conviction of that time for positive psychology had come, Sligman and Mr. C., their message is a timely reminder to the field that, quote, psychology is not just a study of pathology, weakness, and damage, it's also the study of strength and virtue. Treatment is not just fixing what is broken, it's nurturing what is best. Psychology is not just a branch of medicine concerned with illness or health, it's much larger. It's about work, education, insight, love, growth, and play. And in this quest for what is best, positive psychology does not rely on wishful thinking, faith, self-deception, fads, or hand-waving. It tries to adapt what is best in the scientific method to the unique problems that human behavior presents to those who wish to understand it in all all its complexity. At the center of this approach lies the issue of prevention. How can psychologists prevent the problem that so many people experience like depression, addiction, and anxiety? Such an approach represented a contrast to the disease model that had dominated for 50 years, which had focused on treating psychological ill-being after its onset, and largely failed to, pr- to move psychology closer to the prevention of these issues. In fact, some of the major steps towards prevention were focused on building competency, not on correcting weaknesses. Certain human strengths can be act as buffers against psychological illness, including courage, future-mindedness, optimism, faith. All right, my interjection, faith in who? Ourselves, looking at our strengths, virtues, and, co- and capacities to reach our full potential. Uh, moving back on. Work ethic, hope, honesty, and perseverance. And in my interjection again now I just want to note here does God address any of these listed things would he perhaps having created us know how to produce these things in a human but moving on quote psychologists therapists and consultants need to acknowledge that much of the best work they do with their patients and clients is is to enhance their strengths virtues and capacities rather than repairing weakness Uh, My note, again, this is self-esteem oriented. Quote, psychologists and practitioners working with families, schools, communities, and institutions need to develop environments that promote these strengths. The time when psychology viewed individuals as passive vessels reacting to stimuli has passed. Individuals are decision makers with choices, preferences, and a set of values and strengths that allow them to learn, excel, and hopefully remain resilient in adverse circumstances. Positive psychology arose from the need to redirect psychology back to its two neglected missions, to make people stronger and more productive, and to develop and nurture high talent. All right, that was all from Positive Psychology, and introduction on positivepsychology.com. So it seems to me that Positive Psychology believes that given the right circumstances, having the right needs met, and the promotion of self, one can make oneself stronger and more productive or more fulfilled. Yet God tells us that none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. That's Romans three ten 10-12. But Jenny Allen must believe that positive psychological techniques are beneficial to our sanctification, our pursuit of Christ-likeness, or she would not have included their techniques in this book. So let's look at these techniques she introduces in her book. The first one is mind mapping in session one after a brief introduction into the historical background of Philippians we are directed to our first project on page 21 to 26 and that is to create a mind map of our most prevalent emotions associated with a list of thoughts that we dealt with that day. Now what is mind mapping? Mind mapping is usually used for study and planning, like a way to gather ideas, thoughts, and goals on paper to help bring clarity. It's basically taking an idea and connecting thoughts, items, goals, etc. to them. In this case, we take an emotion such as overwhelmed and then connect what quote-unquote spheres or areas in our lives that affect or might be causing that emotion. Now, I have nothing against mapping these things or even identifying emotions and why we may feel a certain way. But when it comes to Bible study, our thoughts and emotions shouldn't be the focus. What God has said in scripture should be the focus and my emotions and thoughts should bow the knee to his word. All right, her second technique that she introduces is called cognitive reframing. Now, what is cognitive reframing? Reframing is a way of changing the way you look at something and thus changing your experience of it. I can turn a stressful event into an either highly traumatic or a challenge to be bravely overcome. Or, it can depict a really bad day as mildly low point in overall wonderful life. Or, it can see a negative event as a learning experience. So, reframing is a way that we can alter our perceptions or stress uh, of stressors and thus uh, relieve significant amount of stress and create a more positive life before actually making any changes in our circumstances. And this is... I got from um, VeryWellMind.com on Cognitive Reframing for Stress Management. Jenny introduces the strategy in session three under the weapon of silence on page 62 to 63. It is in taking time to silence the thoughts that we can, quote, rewrite that pattern while taking back the power he has given us. In other words, we can cognitively reframe our situations with the new pattern looking like this negative emotion and reason. So I will choice. Page uh, that's in quote, page 63. So she gives some example I'm upset. That was the emotion. And I was passed over. That was the reason so i will choose to remember that god has not forgotten me that's the choice okay i could encourage that but it's really quite superficial i would say and not needed if one has worked at studying the word jesus in his high priestly prayer states but now that i'm coming to you and these things i speak in the world that they have So it's God's word that is true and by God's word that we are sanctified and made holy. We can have the word of God in our minds and we can study and we can meditate on it day and night so that we may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then we will make our way prosperous and we will have good success. That was Joshua 1.18 meaning then that we do not need to reframe our thoughts or situations but will be so consumed in god's word that no matter the struggle or situation we can be content in all things as paul was when he said i have learned whatever situation to be content i know how to be brought low and i know how to abound in, in any and every circumstance i have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need i can do all things through him who strengthens me Philippians 4 11 to 13 and the more we're in the word the less we will have these emotions that are not connected to contentment meaning we will not need to reframe anything for contentment and joy is the outcome of knowing Christ our Lord so take David as an example David, after all he had been through, I believe would be prime for fear, anxiety, depression, and spiraling thoughts. Yet, what does he choose to do but focus on God's word in those times? We see clearly his pain and anguish in his writings of the Psalms, and we see what he meditates and thinks upon. He didn't have to learn how to cognitively reframe his situation to shift perspective. He only proclaims the glory of God in his faithfulness, worshiping and praising him even in his struggles and need. Okay, her third technique that she introduces is using awe and beauty to diminish the self. Now in session three under the weapon of delight, Jenny Allen directs us to focus on awe and beauty quote when researchers studied awe and beauty they found an interesting connection when we experience awe we move toward others in beneficial ways we are freed from being the center of our own worlds just for a moment and we become more invested in the well-being of others more generous less entitled in quote page 65 to which she then cites this statement to the study done by Paul K. Piff titled, Awe, the Small Self, and Pro-Social Behavior, as presented in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology back in 2015 um, under volume 108. Now here's the analysis of that study. Awe is an emotional response to Per, uh, perceptually vast stimuli that transcend current frames of reference. Guided by conceptual analysis of awe as a collective emotion across five studies, we tested the hypothesis that awe can result in a, disminu- a diminishment of the Im- individual self and its concerns and increase prosocial behavior. In a representative national sample, or study number one, uh, dispositional tendencies to experience awe predicted greater generosity in an economic game above and beyond other prosocial emotions, In example: compassion. In follow-up experiments, introductions of awe relative to various control states increased ethical decision-making, that was study number two, or generosity in study number three, and prosocial values for study number four. Finally, a naturalistic in, in, sorry <laughs> a naturalistic induction of awe in which participants stood in a grove of towering trees, enhanced pro social helping behavior, and decreased entitlement compared to participants in a control study condition. That was num- study number five. Mediational data demonstrates that the effects of awe on pro sociality are explained in part by feelings of a small self. These findings indicate that awe may help situate individuals within broader social context and enhance collective concern. Alright so that was again the reading from Paul K. Piff's title, uh, or article titled, Awe the Small Self and Pro-Social Behavior. Basically these studies were done to observe behaviors of individuals after experiencing awe and beauty, resulting in behaviors of increased decision-making, generosity, prosocial values, and helpfulness, and decreased feelings of entitlement. While that's fascinating and all, what about times of struggles, wars, times when death and destruction is around? How can we become people who are not manipulated by our experiences and serve and love at all times? Well, Let's think, Christ has called us to love even our enemies, Luke six twenty seven 27-36, people who actually desire to hurt us. Do we have to experience awe and beauty to love them? No, for a Christian, the desire to love and serve people even our enemies does not come from experiencing awe and beauty, but comes from loving Christ, desiring to keep His commandments, John fourteen fifteen. Experience comes in all sorts of forms, but truth remains the same. God's word is true regardless of experience. We can and should be guided by the truth, not experience and not feelings, for both are subjective and are fleeting. God's word is outside of ourselves and never changes. All right, the fourth technique she introduces and the last one that we'll look over is that of identifying cognitive distortions. What are cognitive distortions? Cognitive distortions are biased perspectives we take on ourselves and the world around us. They are irrational thoughts and beliefs that we unknowingly reinforce over time. This is from the article of positivepsychology.com on cognitive distortions, which she attributes in her book. Now This shows up in session five under project number three. We are directed to, quote, circle the thought patterns and way of thinking that entangle us, end quote, and then answer questions on page 120 to 122. So please notice that to positive psychology and to Jenny Allen, these are lies or irrational beliefs that we can become entangled in. Here's what the, um, here's what she listed as distortions or irrational thoughts, beliefs that entangle people. All or nothing thinking. Mental filter. Jumping to conclusions. Emotional reasoning. Labeling. Overgeneralizing. Disqualifying the positive. Magnification. Uh, You castros- <laughs> can't pronounce this either. Catastrophizing. <laughs> And minimization, the should or must mentality, and personalization, this is my fault. Now, I'm going to probably cause a kerfuffle here when I say this, but it really can't be helped. In all of these, there is sin that can and should be identified. Now, I want to make a distinction here. These are ways of thinking. Something that happens on a regular basis. Not the once in a while thought that comes into our mind. Now I make this distinction because an occasional thought is not necessarily sin. But um, to be constantly performing some of these patterns shows a lack of understanding of the law or a lack of faith in God. I also want to note that I too have dealt with these and I'm still dealing with some of these. So I'm not trying to say that I'm perfect. And do not struggle with these ways of thinking, but I am saying that in them can be found certain sins to which we not merely identify and choose to overcome them, but repent and trust Christ's sacrifice for them. So let's take a look at each one. The all or nothing thinking, sometimes called um, black and white thinking, or if I'm not perfect, I have failed. Either I do it right or not at all. So these are some of the thoughts that uh, can crop up. Now, sin can be identified if one believes that they can or have reached perfection or has set their own standards of what is right and wrong. But if we think biblically, this is a true and right way of thinking. God requires perfect obedience. If even one command is broken all commandments are broken James 2:10 We are called to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect Matthew 5:48 Now obviously we fail at this but the thinking this is not a lie the cure or solution to this way of thinking is the gospel We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2nd Corinthians 5 21 to 20. Alright, mental filter. So this way of thinking only pays attention to certain types of evidence. It notices our failures but not ever seeing our successes. Now perhaps for one there's awareness of sin There or an expectation of perfection to which, again, the gospel can be preached to them. Okay, another uh, thought pattern that uh, Jenny and positive psychology claims can entangle our mind is jumping to conclusions. There are two types of jumping to conclusions, and one is mind reading. Imagining we know what others are thinking, and two, fortune telling or predicting the future. Now, number one is a uh, can be a sin by bearing false witness, by coming to a conclusion without all the details, and it can even become slander if we claim our conclusion is true when it's not. Um, number two, fortune telling or predicting the future. And, of course, it not coming to pass is called false prophecy and is a sin against God's name. All right, emotional reasoning, let's see, assuming that because we feel a certain way, what we think must be true, Uh, thinking, I feel embarrassed, so I must be an idiot. Now this can be a sin as we are guided by our emotions instead of guided by God's word. Another one is labeling, assigning labels to ourselves or other people like I'm a loser or I'm completely useless or they are such idiots. In regards to this, sin can result from labeling ourselves things that do not align with scripture. Um, In regards to labeling others, we sin when labels are given. Labels are given falsely or in hatred as God calls us not even to call what a fool without a reason. All right, overgeneralizing Seeing a pattern based upon a single event or being overly broad in the conclusions we draw. This can result in sin by claiming we are God and can judge the present based on the past. But only God sees all and knows all. Even the outcomes of any and all events. And we are not God. So uh, the next one is disqualifying the positive. Discounting the good things that have happened or that you have done for some reason or another. Claiming that doesn't count. Now Paul states in 1 Corinthians 4, 3-5. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So to make a claim that what someone does or doesn't do doesn't count is to play God and is a sin. As it is God who will one day judge all the hearts and actions of men and will say what did and didn't count. Paul doesn't even judge himself but leaves that up to God. So let God be the judge. Another one is magnification or catastrophizing and minimization. This is blowing things out of proportion, Uh, catastrophizing, or inappropriately shrinking something to make it seem less important. Now, bottom line, this is a sin and results in sin because it's outright lying. Um, Anytime you blow things out of proportion, you're not fully telling the truth. And to inappropriately shrink something is the same thing. Making it less important, again, is lying. Should or must mentality. Using critical words like quote-unquote should, quote-unquote must, quote-unquote ought, can make us feel guilty or like we have already failed. If we apply should to other people, the result is often frustration. I can see unbelieving women struggling with this as one's moral standard can be seen as merely their opinion to another. For an unbeliever, this is sinful as it becomes pharisaical, since righteousness apart from Christ is the goal. It is God's word that has told us what should, must, and ought to be done in this life, and his commands are not burdensome for his children 1 John 5, 3. To give shoulds to others can and does bring f- frustration if one does not understand the sinful nature of humanity, their own need for forgiveness, and the good news of the gospel. But the thing is, this is not a lie or a rational if they are based on God's word and his instructions on what to do. The question is, why shouldn't we hold these standards up to people? Why would Jenny look at this as a distortion, irrational thought or an entanglement when the Bible clearly has should, must, and ought throughout it? If one looks at what they believe they should do and compared to scripture, then one can either cast it aside in sin or accomplish it in love. Now I'm talking about Christians here because this book claims to be a Bible study assumed to be done by Christian women. Now I should not lie so I do what I can to make sure I do not lie. I ought to love my neighbor as myself and must be holy as God is holy and thank God for Christ and his righteousness given to me. In that regard the these shoulds, must and oughts ought to make us feel guilty. That's the point of the law to show us our guilt before God. But that's where the gospel comes in and rescues us from God's wrath. So to have these apart from God's word is a sin. But to have them come from God's word is a good thing and should be done. Now, boy, I'm actually implementing this entanglement, aren't I? (laughs) Anyway, the uh, last one is personalization or this is my fault. Blaming yourself or taking responsibility for something that wasn't completely your fault. Conversely, blaming others, other people, for something that was your fault. How is someone willing to take responsibility for their part in a problem, an irrational thought, lie, or entanglement? Some people might say... Those who take responsibility or blame themselves for problems that occurred when they had nothing to do with it is one thing, but if one is willing to look and see if they have sinned in some part and take responsibility for their sin, repent and turn to Christ, then isn't that good? First John 1, 8-10 tells us, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So let's think about this. The Bible says, even our good deeds are filthy rags to God. Why is that? Because even our good deeds are stained with sinful desires that come from our flesh. If even our good deeds have sins connected to them, that means they, apart from Christ, do not stand up to God's standards. That even when we do good, there's something in those deeds that doesn't measure up to loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving neighbor as ourselves, and to which we need to repent. Hence, why we need a righteousness that is apart from our own. A Christian that is maturing is always looking at what might be sin in their lives because it affects their relationship with the Lord. We do not shy away from being confronted with our sin. Though at times our flesh wants to defend ourselves, we will take time to ask ourselves if it is true. This is part of what it means to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. For the fear of God rules over us, Deuteronomy 10.12. It's part of taking up our cross and crucifying our flesh daily to follow Christ. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit, Philippians 2, 13, who convicts us of sin to which we turn to our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, keep his word and walk as he walked. 1 John 1, 5 to 2, 6. Now, of course, the second one, blaming others for something that Uh, was your fault is obviously a lie and is a full sin. All right, conclusion. (laughs) So I think it's good to stop here for today. While I did take three episodes critiquing Jenny Allen's study in Philippians, going through her claims, I wanted to hit hard her psychological techniques by showing you how she brought them in, her use of them, and whether or not they were biblically accurate to answer the question, do we really need them? Now, I hope I made a strong case that the answer is no. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Second Peter 1, 3-4 But I believe an even better question to think about is, Is there a problem with mixing scripture and positive psychology, and why does Jenny include them? That's what we'll tackle in next week's episode, and it should be pretty interesting. But until then, I pray you are in his word.